Hello and welcome to the Kiara Goes Global podcast. The Kiara Goes Global podcast is your one-stop shop for navigating anything travel, lifestyle, and growth related as you experience your 20s and early adulthood. Guided by your host, Kiara Mason, let's enjoy this journey together. Today we are going to be discussing some sensitive topics, including systemic racism, white privilege, and the BLM movement. Before we dive in, I just want to give a trigger warning. This episode will discuss colonialism, genocide, racism, death, white supremacy, white privilege, and more. So please only proceed with listening to this episode if you feel that you are in a safe space to do so. And if you are in search of resources, please visit the description for this episode. There are links to our blog posts on our website that have further resources that you can connect with. I have been holding off on diving into this topic for a while. I want to make sure that I'm always holding space for those that are directly impacted by certain events or certain movements going on. But today I do want to take some time to talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, which recently resurged last year and many of the effects are continually ongoing. The Black Lives Matter protests gained a lot of momentum across countries around the world last year in particular, for citizens that were just outraged at the continuous violence enacted towards Black people by the state, and the continued lack of consequences for those who perpetrated these violent actions. And when all these situations are occurring and are continuing to happen, I believe that it's really important for me as a white settler to not stay silent. And I really want to address this a little bit more and dive into it deeper. I think it's been on the minds of lots of people around the world. And I've been sharing resources personally, but today I just want to dive into that and talk a little bit more about my own positionality, discussing white privilege a little bit more and providing some resources as well. And I do have a couple of blog posts about this on kiaragoesglobal.com that I will link to in the description of the episode so you can get access to all of those resources as well. It's really important to acknowledge that the Black Lives Matter movement has existed for many years. It's not a new movement. It's just something that's gained a lot of recent momentum. The U.S. in particular has been the epicenter of many of deaths of Black people at the hands of police. And a lot of the protests that have occurred because of that has happened in the U.S. as well. However, this is not only a problem that the U.S. faces. It's found all across the globe. There's a lot of nations around the world that are facing similar problems and are protesting as well, including in Canada. I think a lot of people tend to think that Canada is a place that is immune of these 
injustices. And this is something that I touched on a couple weeks ago when I talked a little bit more about Canada Day. You know, we all need to remember that to begin with, Canada was created by stealing the land of Indigenous peoples and enacting genocide on an entire population, much of which is still occurring today. Canada is a colonial nation that was created by white men to continue to benefit white men. It's a system that's built to support white success, wealth, and power. And simultaneously, that same system is also built on the oppression of anyone who is not white. This is a legacy that continues today and can be seen in the actions of many institutions, including the police as well. There's a really great resource on Instagram that I will hopefully share the link for. A good friend of mine shared some statistics about what has happened and continues to happen in Canada today that I think some people just aren't aware of. Some of the stats that they shared that stood out the most to me include the fact that one third of the victims shot by the RCMP in Canada between 2007 and 2017 were Indigenous. The Black community makes up 3.4% of Canada's population and somehow 9% of police fatalities. Black people in Toronto are 20 times more likely to be shot dead by the police. There have been many recent incidents occurring with deaths at the hand of police for both Black people and Indigenous folks, all of which have involved the RCMP. It's not a coincidence that these deaths are enacted on certain people in our population. This is systemic racism and it's built into our systems and our institutions. The consequences of that are very real and they can't be denied in the same way that we cannot deny the existence of systemic racism within these institutions. Continuing with the story or the narrative of Canada as being a nice and polite country isn't going to get us anywhere. As one of my favorite accounts on Instagram, Decolonize Myself, shared, Canadian politeness is often used to absolve themselves from acknowledging their complicity in structural or systemic racism as if racism only exists as a malicious attitude of discrimination. That's a great quote. And racism does exist in Canada as it is built into the fabric of our nation through these various systems and institutions. And recognizing this systemic racism and white supremacy in these institutions is that first step. From there, it is on all of us to recognize our own complicity within these systems. Now I wanna dive in and talk a little bit more about white privilege. White privilege is something that I didn't really dive into 
until I was in university. And saying that, and not even being aware that I had white privilege when I was growing up, is a privilege all on its own. And once I dove into this subject and social justice topics a little bit further in university, I had a lot of learning and unlearning to do. And I still have a really long ways to go, but I think one of the most important parts of this process is recognizing your own privilege and how that makes you complicit in certain systems and in institutions. Perhaps the most simple way to understand white privilege is this. Being white doesn't mean that you do not have struggles. It just means that your skin will not be one of those struggles. White is so often defined as the normal and the default that anything outside of it is seen as other. Again, being seen as what is normal is a privilege that many of us don't even recognize because it has been ingrained in us for so many years. And this is where that unlearning comes in. Though a lot of people that I know and that I'm sure others know as well are quite resistant to recognizing their own privilege, it's really necessary to sit with it and to learn from it. And one of the defense that I find many white people bring up in a way to maybe defend their privilege is colorblindness. Colorblindness involves saying that you do not see color, everyone is the same, we are all one human race, all lives matter, etc. And saying that you don't see color is really dangerous because it means that you are not recognizing your white privilege and all of the advantages it provides while simultaneously minimizing the struggles of people of color who do have more to overcome than white people. And as the BLM movement in particular gained increased momentum, many people who might not have recognized their white privilege or their complicity in the past are beginning to dive into doing so. And this can be a really unsettling journey, and it should be. And I'll discuss some more resources a little bit later on for those of you that want to educate yourselves further. One of the ways that I try to recognize my white privilege is by looking back and looking at where I am currently in life and how what I've done has been impacted by my privilege. And growing up as a white person in Canada, I hold an immense amount of privilege. This privilege has made it a lot easier for me to access countless opportunities, such as attending university, graduating from university, securing job positions, traveling, and more. These are all very big parts of my life, and I know a big portion of why they have been in my life is due to the white privilege that I hold. That doesn't mean that I didn't work my ass off to get these things. It means that it was just a little bit easier to get them because of the color of my skin, which is really 
not something that should exist at all. I don't have to face the same barriers that people of color do. I don't have to worry about the threat of violence in my everyday life as people of color do. It is truly madness to me that something as simple as the color of your skin and your background can be a defining component of so many aspects of your life. It's really important for me to recognize my own positionality within this and how the systems that I take part in, such as education, job positions, different forms of mobility, they're all built on white supremacy and systemic racism. It is a lot to undo the systems that have been built this way for so many years, but it's necessary to do that. I am really hopeful that as more people become a part of this conversation and look inwards to find their own complicity, that we can continue to move forward for a more equal future. When looking at some of the posts and comments that have been coming up online recently and over the past year or so in relation to the BLM movement, it appears that a lot of people who are being confronted with the realities of systemic racism are quite resistant to it. And I think one of the reasons that white privilege is hard for some people to grasp is because they think that it means their life wasn't hard or they haven't faced any struggles. And that's not the case. As I mentioned previously, white privilege simply means that your skin is not one of the struggles that you had to face. And this is where a concept that I think a lot of people are lacking comes in, and that's intersectionality. Intersectionality is a vital concept to the social justice world. Kimberly Crenshaw coined this term many years ago and has written extensively about it. I highly recommend reading her work for further information. There is a link to Kimberly Crenshaw's article in my last blog post. Intersectionality examines the intersecting aspects of identity that make up one's privilege or lack thereof. These aspects could include race, sexuality, socioeconomic background, gender, education, ability, and many more. Intersectionality is so important because it acknowledges that someone might be privileged in one aspect and not in another. For example, a white person who is in a lower class might have privilege because of their race, but lack privilege due to their socioeconomic status. Conversely, a black person who is in a higher class might be lacking privilege due to their race, but have some privilege due to their socioeconomic status. This concept is so important, and I think it's getting forgotten in a lot of the discussions about race and racism that have come up recently, particularly in relation to white privilege. Intersectionality and privilege go hand in hand, and it really reveals that you can hold privilege in one aspect, but not in another. Right now, the discussions are focused on that aspect of race, 
and who holds privilege in that regard. And when we're looking at race specifically, regardless of the other aspects of your identity that may or may not privilege you, being a white person will always give you privilege due to the color of your skin. This is a really important realization to make that I think many white people in particular are lacking at this time if they're not well-versed in this area. And I would really encourage you to read Kimberly Crenshaw's work. She is an excellent scholar and her work on intersectionality is very important to dive into and understand a little bit more. Now I wanna talk a little bit about activism. What does activism look like? I think it can take a lot of different forms. And whether you're protesting, sharing resources on social media, or doing the work in private, all of those can be helpful in different ways. However, I do wanna take a moment to talk a bit more about social media activism and the dangers of performative allyship. Last year in particular, there were a lot of people sharing statements of support, which was particularly seen with the hashtag Blackout Tuesday posts that were on Instagram, where a lot of people expressed their solidarity by posting a black tile to their Instagram feed. And that was really helpful to express that solidarity through social media. If your solidarity stops at posting that black square or a couple of stories on Instagram showing your support, then you're not doing much to support the movement at all. And what you're actually doing is performative allyship. Performative allyship is dangerous because it gives the illusion that you are in solidarity with the movement without you actually doing any of the work behind the scenes to understand the importance of the movement overall and your own complicity within these systems. Regardless of what it is that you are posting online, you have to do the work outside of that as well. Black Lives Matter today and every day, regardless of whether or not it's something that's trending on social media. This is not simply a moment in time, it's a consistent movement that's calling on all of us to do better. And showing up as an ally is a lifelong commitment and it does not happen overnight. And it's really necessary to put in that work to be better. Among everything else that happened in 2020, including the chaos of the COVID-19 pandemic, we stood up and fought for BIPOC rights, human rights. And I know that we have lost a bit of that momentum from that initial movement, which is something that we really need to come back to because what we fought for then is something that we're going to need to keep fighting for. In particular, there was an extreme event that occurred at the beginning of January in 2021 in the United States that made the realities of this fight continuing and the fact that we can't forget everything that 2020 taught us all too clear. 
On January 6th in 2021, there was two weeks until the inauguration of the United States President-elect Joe Biden. The current U.S. President at the time, Donald Trump, decided to host a rally encouraging his supporters to not give up their support for him. He cited claims that the election was fraudulent and that he had actually won and wanted his supporters to know that they should keep fighting for their right to be in office. Ultimately, he incited them to storm the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. to delay the process of certifying the votes of the election. A few hours later, absolute chaos ensued. A group of domestic terrorists under the full encouragement and support of the president stormed the White House. I remember watching the news when this happened and it was just insane. However, the action in and of itself is not too surprising as many Trump supporters are prone to violence as this is something that Trump incites within them with a rhetoric of false news. What I found to be more staggering was the actions of the police and other law enforcement, or rather the lack of action. The heavy police and military presence that we saw in place less than six months earlier against the peaceful Black Lives Matter protesters was pretty much nowhere to be found for this group of white domestic terrorists. Somehow they made their way fully into the Capitol. They effectively stalled the certification of the election and cabinet members were fearing for their lives as gunshots went off. And the fact that the police did next to nothing, and these terrorists basically walked right into the Capitol unchecked, is the peak of white supremacy and privilege. As many media outlets said at the time, if this had happened and been led by a group of non-white people, the results would be entirely different. And I can almost guarantee that there would have been much more activity from police and the other security in the White House. Black lives are clearly not valued in this system. And if you had at all any doubt about the existence of white privilege or systemic racism, I hope you're now well aware of this reality. It's up to us to support and uplift Black lives when our own systems, police, government, and more fail to do so. So what happens next after an extreme attack like this? Impeachment or forcible removal for a president that encouraged domestic terrorism from white supremacists on U.S. soil? Or is this something that is inconceivable because he himself is a white supremacist who benefits from this type of rhetoric and is supported by cabinet members who believe the same thing, but perhaps are just afraid to say them out loud. On January 13th, 
of 2021, the paperwork was officially filed by the House to impeach President Trump. And not surprisingly, the majority of Republicans that were in Congress voted against impeachment and continue to want to keep Trump in office. However, the majority of Congress did vote for impeachment. And when I initially wrote this post, impeachment was awaiting approval from the Senate, which is not anticipated to happen until after Inauguration Day. Though Trump won't be removed prior to inauguration, hopefully he will be impeached to prevent him from running again in the future. And as Inauguration Day got closer to swear in President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, who both made public statements condemning Trump's actions, perhaps the future does hold some hope. But what does that hope look like? The problem moving forward is that this hate that is in the air and these beliefs are going to be there whether or not Donald Trump is in office. And this is not just an American problem, though much of this context is in the US, but a colonial border does not mean that Canada is immune from these thoughts, beliefs, and forms of violence. On the same day that these attacks were occurring and shortly after, there were many different forms of protests of support for Trump that broke out in cities across Canada. And prior to this, Canada has also had multiple examples of white supremacist terrorism. There are multiple right-wing extremism groups that exist in Canada, many of which have risen since Trump's election in 2016 as that influence of American society is something that's felt throughout the globe. Even having an online presence of right-wing groups and white supremacy rhetoric in general is really concerning as those types of thoughts can be very quick to manifest in person, as was demonstrated by those who held the protests across Canada as well. Those who hold strong beliefs of white supremacy and seek to inflict violence on others, these terrorists that are continuing to attack democracy, they are not people in a far away land that you don't know as xenophobic rhetoric would have you believe. Terrorists could be your neighbors, your friends, the people in your own backyard who truly believe that white lives are of more value than other lives. Perhaps they don't say this out loud, or maybe they don't even believe it at their core, but supporting those who condone these violent actions in the name of white supremacy is directly supporting white supremacy. It's present in Canada, present in our neighbors, present in Trump supporters who will still be there long after Trump leaves office. So how can we address it and find a way to move forward? Where do we go from here?
for white people such as myself, it is really difficult to unlearn white supremacy. And it's very likely that it will make you feel uncomfortable as hell. But that's a good thing. And that doesn't mean that you should stop. I hope that you feel uncomfortable and sad and angry. And I hope that you can turn those emotions into action and push yourself to do more, learn more, and be better. And this is as much a reminder to myself as it is to anyone else. As I mentioned previously, I have a list of resources on the blog post. Please check out the description for this episode to get access to the blog post and see the full list there. I might not have all the answers or necessarily say the right thing, but I'm trying and I'm really hopeful that the more people that join this conversation, the more that we can move forward to create that more equal future for all of us. Thank you so much for tuning in today to the Kiara Goes Global podcast. For more ways to connect with us, you can visit our website at kiaragoesglobal.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.